Welcome to episode four of Coffee and Circuses. This week I'm talking to Jan Montefiore, who's a professor of English here at the University of Kent. We're taking a slightly different route this week because usually I talk to the person about their work, which I'm kind of doing with Jan, but also to some extent really the focus of this podcast is just talking about somebody else who's Rudyard Kipling. So Kipling writing at the start of the 20th century for many people I guess would have been the first exposure to the Roman world. He was so widely read Uh, And we're going to be talking about Kipling's impact, how he presents Roman Britain, how he talks about the Roman world, uh, and also, to some degree, the big kind of problems that are involved uh, when discussing Kipling. Like, you know, for example, he's a massive racist uh, and imperialist. We talk about the the legacy of Kipling and what his presentation of the Roman world uh, means for us nowadays. Um, But before we get into that, I have a very special guest here for the intro <laughs> section of this who's going to tell you exactly why you should be coming to the track conference here at Kent in April. No, you're just staring. <laughs> Is that the cue? That's the That's cue. That's the cue. Can you can introduce me. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, well, uh, the I feel like I've introduced all of like you know the guests and everything, and I'm here just as your promotion monkey. Uh, <laughs> okay, so here we have Jay Ingate, Kent alumni... CCU lecturer, and now I suppose unofficial. How I don't know how many members they have. The band Lit. Oh, <laughs> well, look, Lit's appreciation of me on Instagram is well known. <laughs> Although it should be maybe, but um, yeah, yeah. So um, just because they've liked my really poor Instagram posts, um, but yeah, so I'm here. So I've got to describe track, have I? Yeah, you got to pour a little bit of Springsteen dust on. You're going to Springsteen. Oh wait a minute, like... wait a minute. That's, uh, oh, you're wearing Springsteen t-shirt. Well, well, you know, uh, just got to keep it real. Um, yeah, so what, promoting track things that things are good maybe about track. Why you should come, I suppose. Yeah. First reason is you know it's in Kent, Canterbury. Great place to come and visit. Um, Obviously, I've been here for ages. So I feel like I'm always like the spirit of the place. Was the Roman sort of like the, ge- yeah. the genius? The yeah, genius the genius loca, something <laughs> like that. You know, although you know, not according to according to Kent's website because I'm not on there. But oh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so Canterbury, Canterbury and Kent, great place to visit. Maybe the weather's going to be good at the time. Have the nice views of Kent campus. Now, there's other things, you know, networking. Networking, meet some people, meet the people on the back of the books. I remember the first time I went to uh, to track was in Frankfurt, and I registered, got there. Um, the first person I saw, Martin Millet, just strode in the door, and I thought, oh my god, I've seen that face on like books so many times, but it was a bit surreal. But so you get to meet those people. First time I met Martin Millet, standing next to me in a urinal. I mean, <laughs> didn't, didn't say anything. I mean, that's strong. <laughs> <laughs> didn't say well, well, why would he? You know, just for the blue. Oh, David. <laughs> yeah, so you get to meet those people. I suppose that's good. And you get to see them as humans. So mm. it's not just uh, academic papers, but it's going out, having a pint with someone and, you know, talking to them. And also, like, meeting people that will be the next generation of those people. I suppose that's it. I'm not great. You're much better networker than I am. But um, (laughs) self-promotion for David. (laughs) No, but um, in terms of established academics. But then again, you know, you might meet post grads and post docs that are going to go on and be those, and they might, you know, it might be good for your career. Different collaborations and stuff like this. So that's got to be another reason, hasn't it? Um, Thinking, I'm scratching my head about the other ones. (laughs) No, I think. yeah, generally it's a good time, it's good like camaraderie with um, between people. I suppose, I mean, one of the main reasons is is to possibly see the host of this podcast in his 
true and final form, like almost like a Pokemon that's evolved. Like it's like you know, last last stage of evolving. Like I don't know. I mean, maybe in, I've now reached my Charizard level. Yeah, I think you have got there. You know, I think it's. Um, I mean, what do they know you as? Like in Rome, you're probably just known as the the absinthe deceiver Didn't or something like this. <laughs> um, yeah, thinking of the things you've done. Maybe at these track parties, which of course is another reason to come. The track parties are great, great time to meet people, and you know sometimes gets a bit out of hand. <laughs> well, <laughs> we have got Andy. Gar- I've got Andy Gardner coming up on the show in a yeah. couple of weeks, and we do discuss the track party because of he has a reputation as the last man standing. I think. Well, because yeah. Andy Gardner's got not only has he got the sort of theoretical weight of his work, which is always always you know top class, but then also he just knows how to let it go. Mm-hmm. Down the track party, you know, Ramstein comes on. Then uh, Andy Gardner's <laughs> going to be he's going to be there. Yeah, yeah, another reason you could have a dance off with Andy Gardner. Like, it's a possibility, though. It's a strong possibility. Yeah, but yeah, you know, you, you've obviously committed to that lots of time. I remember you like a, a Leicester trap party. It was sort of like I don't know the bar top backers. You know, just bar top backers. You got lots that. of nicknames for that. you, like bar top backers. I don't know, Fabio's kid. Uh, <laughs> Durham, I don't know. Something to do with the Kaylee from Edinburgh, I suppose, would be appropriate. Or, or what, snake bite denier or something? Snake bite denier. <laughs> that was a big pint of snake bite. Or it was like a pint and a half of snake bite. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, as well, because you were drinking it with that mutual friend, Carl, PhD student at Kent, uh, who is a giant of a man. Uh, and we'll be on the podcast eventually as well yes. I guess well, we were discussing before we started yeah. that we've already done a trial recording with Carl which will be the B-side for the, the box set of the uh, the yeah. podcast one day <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's going to release again Springsteen specials you know David in, in the future this will be a classic podcast and he'll have to release fine cuts from it you know that are sort of you know unheard of uh, so yeah I suppose you know, networking great location meeting new people Seeing David, if you're a massive fan of this podcast, in real life and seeing what he's all about, which is a sight to behold. Um, yeah, it might go up and down on the night as well. He's well known for having peaks and troughs, so hopefully you'll see him. Paradise Regained. Yeah, um, Paradise Regained, Paradise Lost, yeah. Don't forget the trips as well. And the trips, of course. The trips to some, some great places, the Richborough, Reculver, doing the Painted Downs at mm-hmm. Dover as well. Yeah, we actually I was in a meeting a little bit discussing Richborough the other day. I think this can it's going to be a site that gets um, quite nicely reinterpreted in the coming years. I know English Heritage is doing a lot of work on it. Obviously, we know the PhD student Kent involved in that as well. But um, yeah, so possibly a good time to see it. A really impressive site. We went the other week, didn't we? And it was just impressive in terms of its scale and its space and. I guess almost it's emptiness, but you sort of just, it's yeah. not, it has that thing about it. Yeah. So, some great trips as well that you can go on. It's great for the gram as well. It's great, of course. It's like got top Instagram game, isn't it? <laughs> if that's what you're interested in. If, if you want to get obscure 90s pop punk bands liking your Instagram posts like, <laughs> like me, then you'll be going to Richborough and, you know, posting things like that or uh, various things. Beautiful. So, I think that's an awful intro. You know? <laughs> I think that we're going to have to fine tune those things. Uh, so essentially, come to track because there's a great party, yeah. <laughs> and there's we some archaeology. Well. There's some great archaeologists yeah. there. As oh well. no, it's yeah. fantastic! I guess you could say it's where we kind of. Well, I think you've um, been. I think over the last few weeks, you've probably been covering the sort of really together professional side of it. Yeah. So uh, I'm just giving it a little bit of flavour. <laughs> <laughs> I would say a sprinkling of Springsteen. Yeah. 
It's so a bit of extra, extra Springsteen. Yeah. So uh, yeah, and and this podcast is going to be great. Sort of this episode. I thought we started high. Brilliant. We were high pitch. <laughs> All right. Thanks for tuning in. Two collections each feature a story about Rome. In debits and credits, there's the story about the young Roman centurion who goes to stay with his uncle in Syria. And it's all about um, St Peter and St Paul appear in it. And there are Jewish mobs and Roman mobs. It's it's partly about ethnic tensions. Um, And the centurion, who is a devout Mithraist, you'd like to know, um, in the end, he gets tragically killed, and quite a lot, quite a few people have read it as a kind of post-war, a post-war story, and it's not exactly an allegory, but the kind of the splendid young boy who gets, he's only he's only about sort of twenty, um, he gets stabbed, you know, one one relates that to the generation who died in on the Western Front, and in his last collection, there is a story called the Manner of Men. Which in which, um, which is set in about first century French port, in which three sailors, one of whom is an ex-gladiator, tell the story of a shipwreck, which is actually the story of Paul's shipwreck in on Malta. So there are those two as well, and as well as that, there's also the story that I that actually brought me back to Kipling, Regulus, about the class that's translating the Horace Ode and that also is about the relationship between the Roman Empire and the British Empire mm. so there are several Well they have been very widely read do you think? Yes Back when Kipling was at the height, so like lots and lots of people, like far more today Well Kipling was an incredibly widely selling um, writer, you can't think how widely selling he was um, you know, his books made him a rich man a wealth, uh, made, made him a wealthy man and um, they were very widely read by children. And the, the two debits and credits and limit, limits and renewals are both story collections for adults, not for children. But his, um, but his books sold incredibly well too. So yes, they would have been very widely read indeed. Okay, so I suppose then for many people at the time, perhaps reading Kipling's books, because he also did his history of England as well for schools oh, well that's different yeah that's just, just a textbook it's a yeah. crap textbook really. <laughs> the only good thing about it is Kipling's poems yeah. he's a terrible historian CLR Fletcher but that's different that was for teaching in schools yeah. and it's very didac- didactic yeah. um, but Kipling was you know Kipling was admired by schoolmasters but a lot of children read him for pleasure um, I just mean, wondering how many people would have read Kipling's work his body of work and that might have actually been their first exposure to the Romans to some degree I mean oh, I, suppose, I think that's quite likely yes yeah. it's interesting I wonder I mean it'd be difficult to find out now I don't know how many academics I would know or archaeologists that might have been inspired by Kipling but it would be interesting to find out if many of them grew up with those stories and if they had an impact um, because one of the things I noticed talking to people is a lot of 
things in their childhood seem to have a, a reverberating impact throughout their lives in terms of career choices. Like for me, I actually read horrible histories when I was younger, which is part of the reason I ended up going down the career path that I did. Really? Um, well, that's the first good thing I've heard about hor- horrible histories. <laughs> I, I detest I, it. Well, I mean, I look back on them now, and there's the Rotten Romans, there's a page in there about Mithras no. and all of its, it's kind of... Relentless rule. facetiousness. Yeah. But, but uh, oh well, there you go. But, um, you can't write them off. Yeah, well, even I mean, that, even horrible histories, is better than no history. Exactly. Well, it's a gateway, and that's the thing. And I wonder about that about Kipling as well. Um, you know, people people can argue, as we were saying earlier, about things being how historical historical fiction is. But if it sometimes I think if it's just a gateway for people to get in and start mm. exploring that world, then I don't see how that can ever be a bad thing. Well, no, in, indeed. I wonder with, with that idea of Kipling, though, does his mm. Does his readership... Uh, is what he's saying, I suppose, reflecting his times, or do you think he sets a tone in some respects? Well, it's a bit of both. Um, I mean, we were talking about his racism um, before this actual conversation start, started, and it seems to me idle to pretend that Kipling was not racist. Mm. He was. Um, it's a complicated racism. It includes a great respect for certain aspects of Indian culture and a great affection for particularly Indian peasants and farmers, um, but um, hatred and contempt for Indian intellectuals and, and radicals. And um, when it comes to Africans, I'm afraid he's quite indefensible, and I wouldn't try to yeah. defend him. He's just dreadful the way he writes about Africans. Um, and But in that in these attitudes, it was absolutely typical of his time. I don't think that excuses him. It's a racism, by the way. I think, is that a reason or an excuse? It's not an excuse. Um, but it's... Um, but it is... Um, but, you know, historically it is there. And we were talking about Dickens and, um, you know, the way Dickens responded to the Jamaica Rebellion was just revolting. Mm. But it And it's also... But it's also not the case that every single Victorian felt that way. They didn't. Charles Darwin, for example, for example, sort of was passionate about, um, in his horror at the air at the air rebellion. Um, George Eliot too, I should think. And it's like anti-Semitism. I mean, anti-Semitism was sort of very, very pervasive in. Victorian, Edwardian Britain, and sort of probably up to the Second World War. But there were those who contested it, George Eliot for one. So, so even then there were debates. Um, but wait a minute, I've slightly got off the point. What was, your, what was the question you were asking? Oh, it was how, to what extent is... Um, is he of his time and how did yeah. he shape his time? It's just more that kind it's of It's a hard of, thing yeah. to measure. I mean, Leonard Wolfe said that in his encounter with the, with the army and the people in the colonies, that they were all so like characters out of Kipling, that he wasn't sure whether Kipling had been realist or whether they had modelled themselves on yeah. um, on Kipling's own stories and so on, stories and poems. And I, I think it's probably a bit of both. I mean, um, I think, um, you know, he was very influential and... Um, I mean, look at that poem, If, from which I, from which my enthusiasm is lukewarm, I have to say. I mean, I think it's very good, but that ideal of Mandalus, well, it doesn't have much to say to me, does it? Um, but still, 
there it is. It's offering this ideal of masculinity. Um, and if you're going to have an ideal of masculinity, I have to say that the one offered in if is a good one. Um, you know, it's all about being resilient and enduring and not losing your cool. And I think it probably did influence how, how sort of quite a lot of boys um, wanted to be. Um, I'm not sure if that's a satisfactory answer. But no, because what, what fascinates me with um, how he presents particularly things like Roman Britain is because, uh, particularly in the last 20 years, there's been a lot of discussion. Uh, well, actually, it's been over 20 years, but we're kind of realising now how archaeological investigation, archaeological research is very much a result of its time. So sure. at the time that Kipling was writing, he was writing at the time that this idea, this model of what was called Romanization, was at its height. The idea that Rome expanded its influence, it conquered places, and it was civilizing places, and everywhere wanted to be Roman because it was a the becoming part of the Roman Empire. Being becoming Roman was was the best thing that you could do. At the same time, the sure. British Empire was doing exactly the same thing, and then. Um, as the years have gone by, as the decades have gone by, we had in the post-colonial period, there was a flip around and people said, well, local people mm. never took on Roman traits, they actively resisted it. And now we're at a stage where we realise that all of these things are, it's its very binary, it's Roman against native, or its sometimes it's elite against unelite, and that actually like people's experience of the Roman world, probably much like the British Empire, was much more varied from almost person to person. That's right, yeah. Um, but it's just very interesting that I just found that to some degree it's get, it gets acknowledged in the literature, but one of the things I haven't come across too much of is people talking about people like Kipling in regards to when they look at, when they review the literature of the last hundred years of approaches to the Roman world. Because I think in some respects looking at somebody like Kipling is tremendously important because as we were saying earlier, he is actually a way that the vast majority of people might consume and they're all generate their understanding of the Roman world. He might be the starting point for it. Oh, I think so, yes. I mean, he certainly was for the historical no- children's historical novelist Rosemary Sutcliffe. Mm. We know he was because she said so. I mean, she wrote an essay on her, um, about herself and Kipling and saying how she read him as a child and how he'd um, inspired all her Roman Britain st- stories. As um, And you can see that, you know, um, her kind of the Aquila family who've been sort of settled in Sussex and by the time of the lantern bearers they've been there for about sort of three or four hundred years they're exactly like the Aquila family and the lantern bearers Um, and you were were talking about Rome spreading its its civilization this is true Um, and I remember there's a a wonderful bit it still gives me the shivers I know it's wrong but it gives me the shivers when um, Carnesius and his companion and Maximus, they're taken to, um, they go on this headlong ride to the western side of Scotland, it's obviously the Southway first, and they see the raven-winged ships from the north where Rome does not rule, where Rome does not rule, you know, that's the kind of outside, it's scary, it's dangerous, and of course um, Parnesius will have to fight it. Um, but, um, but some of um, then some of Kipling's understanding was just sort of played wrong. I mean, for instance, Romney Marsh. Um, it used to be thought that the Romans had drained Romney Marsh, and they didn't. Its history is much, much older than that. Sort of actually goes back sort of to the Neolithic times, I think, the very first 
um, people there, and it's a, but um, but Kipling thought that, and Rosemary Sutcliffe's Outcast actually has a scene in which a, cent- a good centurion and his men are shown building the re wall that runs across it. <laughs> <laughs> which was actually built is medieval mm. she couldn't have been wronger yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's one of the fascinating it's still a bloody good story you know yeah absolutely mm. I mean one of the fascinating things as well about Kipling and how it feeds into the models of how people have looked at mm. how what happened kind of after the mm. Roman conquest and, and to what degree people become Roman in inverted mm. commas um, is he he kind of he does really seem to push this idea of Britain, in some respects, being a bit of a successor to Rome, or in terms of oh, very much so. Yeah, the idea that that's the, the theme of Regulus. Yeah, that the British Empire is like the Roman Empire, but it's better. It's not. I mean, that's the thing I really got out of the Parnassus stories as well. Is that it's almost seen as being Britain is actually almost the last outpost of what is supposed to be the Roman world. That Rome itself has become quite decadent and lost its way, whereas people like Parnassus, the Romano-British. Of both, like the mixing of both stock of the people that maintain the traditional, um, the traditional ideals of what the Roman world should be. Well, yes, that's that sort of figures, but there are also um, readings of the Parnassus stories that see them quite differently. Um, that um, that suggest that they're allegories of the dangers that the British Empire faces that the Roman Empire couldn't maintain itself and fell to bits and its stabilising and civilising influence um, sort of, um, you know, was lost. And that is, after all, that is the theme of all of Rosemary Sutcliffe when she writes about Roman Britain. Um, You know, I read all of them when I was a child. And, you know, Roman rule represents order and stability and it's worth fighting for. And I think she kind of probably maps it on to sort of Britain in 1940, fighting against the Nazis, something like that. I mean, particularly, but particularly, you know, the Saxons. Saxons, Saxons were Germans and so forth. Um, but when I read the Lantern by Inveras, I have to remind myself, this was a slave state. <laughs> mm. um, and, you know, um, and I think that's a very good example, actually, of Kipling influencing somebody who was herself influential. Um so I think that's there, but you know, there's irony too. Um, it has. It's not accidental that Parnesius is at the very end of the Roman Empire, and his father sort of knows what's going to happen. But and Parnesius had said, one would have thought eternal Rome was in danger just because a few people had become a little large-minded. Mm. <laughs> and the joke is on Parnesius. Yeah. Um, so. And I think, I mean, particularly if you think of the date of those stories, um, Puck, I think, is 1907. Um, Broads and Ferries, 1910. They post-date the Boer War. The Boer War was a terrible shock to um, imperialists like Kipling because it was a revolt against the British Empire. And... It didn't succeed, but it gave them tremendous trouble to put down. And it showed that uh, the British Empire was not invincible. Um, Kipling thought, and rightly, that it would encourage nationalism. And 
you know, you think it's only it's less than ten years after the Puck books are um, published that we have the Easter Rising in 1916, the War of it then that the War of Independence and the Free State established in, in 1921 or 1922, which Kipling was appalled by the rise of Indian, Indian nationalism. And Kipling wasn't wrong when he saw the when he saw that the British Empire, which he um, was so proud of and thought of as the great the great force for civilization, he he wasn't wrong when he saw it under under threat. So I think um, you know perhaps both of those are true. That yes, he did see the British Empire as a successor to Rome, um, and the short story Regulus makes that very clear. Um, the boys in the school at Regulus are going to become army officers. That's what the boy does. It trains um, boys for the army. And the re reason why they're studying the Horace Ode is because those were the days when the army examiners gave dozens of marks for Latin. So that's why they're learning it. I mean, to what extent did Kipling, do you think, had any kind of relationship with archaeologists or classicists at all that he drew upon well, for his work? Or... he had to learn Latin at school, as all boys of his generation did. And he was, and he had to study Horace. And um, he says in his autobiography that being taught Horace by this very sort of very good teacher made him made me loathe him for years and love him for a lifetime. He returned to Horace again and again. Um, quite a few of his um, poems are kind of pastiches or imitations of, of Horace. Um, so. Um, so he did so, so he had that introduction to Latin literature. Kipling was a tremendous reader. I think one thing people haven't realised about Kipling, they think he was a Philistine. Actually, he was a very widely read man and responded to his reading. So there was that. The archaeologists, well, he tells us in something of myself that sort of the origin of the Puck books came with when he moved to Sussex. And he found himself um, in this landscape full of remains. He says every every yard of it was alive with ghosts and shadows, he says. He describes how they had a well dug and they came up with a crumb, the men came up with a Cromwellian Latin spoon and right at the bottom was a, and no, not at the bottom, um, there was a Roman coin and part of a, uh, Roman cheek bit for a bit of a horse's harness and right at the bottom was a beautifully polished hand axe still with a sort of murderously keen edge mm. she says with relish so you know it wasn't so um, it, you know that and that got him that is what sort of excited him really and then um, and then a relation of his said um, sort of, why don't you tell a story about Roman soldiers? And he, and he started one, um, which was also about the sort of the 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 moment when Rome leaves the when Rome leaves Britain. Um, and but it, but he decided it wouldn't work, so he um, it's not in the final book. So um, I. I don't think Kipling went in a lot for archaeology himself. 
he was very pleased, and he mentions it in Something of Myself, when an archaeological dig um, somewhere in um, somewhere near the wall showed a stone, showed an inscription of the 30th legion, which is Parnesius's legion. And, you know, he was delighted that his own intuition had been borne out yeah. by... Um, that by archaeological fact, though he thought initially that it was pulling his leg, and it turns out that that, that is indeed so. Charles Carrington has an article in the Kipling, Kipling Journal quoting somebody who was one of the people who helped to fake the inscription. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was long after Kipling was dead, of course. Uh-huh. Carrington was his biographer. His, Carrington's biography came out in '55, and I think this was somewhat, there was some time in the 60s. So, um, but I think, you know, the thing about writers is they don't need to go to Knossos and watch sort of Sir Arthur Evans digging things out. A sort of a quite small thing can excite them, you know, this part of a Roman cheek bit, you know, and what that said. Um, so I think he, he had a kind of unof- what turned out to be an unofficial archaeological dig. Mm. <laughs> Did he? Did you know that? No, I didn't actually. Mm. No, because mm. um, I've read before that I think he did communicate with somebody with questions about the cult of Mithras. Um, I'm I, sure he did. Yeah, I, I wonder where his interest in that stems from, because that's my kind of area of oh study. That's what gosh. drew me to to I Kipling. Can't remember. I'm assuming that perhaps the... it's got something to do with. I don't know. I can't remember off the top of my head at his time whether or not they would have excavated, because there are quite a number of Mithraic temples on Hadrian's Wall. Yeah. And I think by his time, at least a few of them would have been excavated. So, I'm pro- sure he knew about that. Yeah. After all, Parnesius meets his best friend at the bull slaying, don't they? Yeah. Sorry, um, I got it wrong, though. They didn't slay bulls. <laughs> yeah, and Puck glosses are dead. This is saying they met each other in church. <laughs> mm. um, I think... The Mithras cult, um, I'm not sure how he got onto it. He must have read some book. I'm sorry, this is something I should have briefed myself before I came. No, it's fine. It's just it's one of the things I wonder about, because he, he was a Freemason as well, wasn't he? Is that um, yes, he was. And I was about to say that I think um, he was very interested in religions, um, and but he would not identify with any... One religion, really. He was you know, sort of that's. Um, I mean, Kim is very, very multicultural mm. in that way. Well, multicultural, multi, whatever the word is, you know, multicultural. Sp- I suppose you could say. And I suppose Parnesius had to be a pagan because Rome was a pagan empire. This is one, but he wanted something that was more kind of sort of monotheist, and you know the. Um, other religion that he found most congenial was Islam. And there was also the Freemasonry, yes, and the comradeship. Because mm, a lot of people draw parallels with the cult of Mithras and Freemasonry, the, the initiations, the all being all male, very secretive. But, um, I mean, that was one of the things that struck me overall about the Parnesius stories that I found quite intriguing. Was the, And this was something I was actually going to ask about with Kipling and religion. It's because he's writing at a time when the Roman Empire is shifting towards Christianity. Um, at Kipling's time, most people would have argued by that point, 
the what he's writing when he's writing the time of Parnesius that by and large most people were, were Christian. We now know they wouldn't have been, but particularly in a time in the time of Theodosius. Theodosius is the emperor who makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Uh, we know Maximus, his coins have the Cairo, the first letters of Christ in Greek. On. Oh, do they? I don't and know it's, that. It's interesting that the, the emperors that are appearing in that story are Christian emperors. It's at a time when most people... He's writing at a time that when most very interesting. academics would have thought that Christianity was quite widespread. And yet he doesn't really refer to it in that sense. He refers to it almost, as you say, as being a more Indeed, pagan, he doesn't. Poly- polytheistic Roman Empire still. The only time Christianity emerges, and even then you have to know your Bible to know that it does, is when Parnesius is marching northwards and he has a brush with a philosopher and he says, I was able to show him out and out of his own book too that he should pay tribute to Caesar. Yeah. Um and that's um you know, that's after the bit of the, the Gospels when um Render unto Caesar. That's right, yeah. yes. Um it it when um it's when Jesus gets sort of asked a trick question by the um by the by the Pharisees, you know, should you trade pay tribute to Rome and he says, whose is the image on the coin? They say Caesar's. And he says, render unto Caesar those things which are Caesar and unto God those things which are God. But uh, you would have to know that story to know that, I mean, and Kipling doesn't know that he's Christian. Sorry, Parnesius doesn't know that. He's quite unaware that he is, um, that he is meeting a Christian. Um, I suppose it's partly, isn't it, because he... Um, Kipling wanted um, to show a kind of, you know, he wanted to show Parnesius as an undisturbed, well, a mentally and emotionally undisturbed Roman who took it for granted that things had all, that things would always go on being as they had been for the last hundred years. So that is why he sacrifices to the gods in his home and. Um, and, um, I mean, when his father says Rome has deserted her gods, he says, you know, he goes back to the time Diocletian. Well, you know, if, if you know anything about Diocletian, you'll know that he tried to turn the Christian tide backwards and made it, made it illegal, <laughs> mm-hmm. which Parnesius, his father, thinks is a really bad thing. You were asking in the late story, The Manner of Men, when he was writing that, he did consult ancient historians because um, he wanted... Um, in the frame story, um, a young captain is sailing with a cargo of um, with a cargo of grain, um, which he's allowed to get damp and it's begun to sprout. And um, and he asks about uh, Kipling asks whether a Roman boats might have been lined with leather um, because he says you know this ship is lined with leather um, and. Um, and the guy gets teased about it, but so so he was keen to try and get that sort of detail right. Okay. He did consult scholars for that. I don't think, although I, I really ought to have checked this beforehand. I don't think he did consult archaeologists for the puck books. I think that he followed his imagination. Yeah, sometimes that's the best way to do it. <laughs> mm, yeah. 
Um, one of the things I found just very interesting is that, because I'm quite a uh, avid Game of Thrones fan, um, was that it, it's inter- his description of the wall, he talks about the wall, the soldiers manning the wall being largely criminals. Riff raff, and he does. He obviously, as a product of his time as well, we've kind of moved beyond this idea now to some degree as well. But the idea of the wall keeping out the barbarians as well from mm. civilization, and the fact that you have people like Parnesius and Persinax, who are the 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 lot, the, the kind of the ones that are left on their own to try and man the wall while the soldiers keep being stripped away from it to go elsewhere, and they're like, well, we need soldiers here and. Mm. And what struck me was that's pretty much exactly what's going on in Game of Thrones with the wall in that. And it, it's one of those things that I found quite interesting in terms of when I talk about Hadrian's Wall, and I was talking about the other week, is a number of the students say, like, oh, it reminds me of, of the wall in Game of Thrones. And then when I going going through the Parnesia stories, I sat there wondering to myself, like talking about Kipling's modern influence. And I started to wonder how much George R. R. Martin's actually influenced by Kipling. I don't know how to what degree he is, but the, the, the similarities between the way he presents the wall in his Game of Thrones books and the way Kipling presents Hadrian's wall are so strikingly similar that it, it was something that really well, stood it's quite out likely. I'm, mm. I'm not a Game of Thrones fan, so I can't <laughs> really say, but I think it is that it is quite likely, yes. Yeah, it's just, it was one of those things, thinking about in terms of Kipling's influence and his continued influence, like... In to what degree it's more of an almost a a less direct influence, but it's still very much there as undercurrent. Well, here's the thing. Kipling has influenced a quite surprising number of writers. Um, there are poets, T.S. Eliot and Auden, you can, you can point to those. Um, and all sorts of writers, and many of them, um, people you might not expect to, sort of Brecht. Um, Isaac Barbell was a big fan of Kipling's short stories. Um, you know, his stories of the Cossack, the Cossack cavalry. And in more recent times, among others, Neil Gaiman. His book, uh, was it The Graveyard Story? Um, he said the inspiration for that was the Jungle Books. Um, so I think it's there's a good chance that your Game of Thrones fans did read, um, did read the... How old is he? Oh, he must be... Martin. I'd say he's probably in his 60s now. Oh, 50s, yes. There's a good 60s. chance that he did. I mean, my generation read them. Yeah. And I'm 70. Um, I think my children were born in 1980 and 1987, and neither of them were interested. But if he's, if he's in his 60s, I think there's a very good chance that he did. Yeah, I mean, and that generation would have been rather brought up on Kipling. Um, you know, they'd be given Kipling books for school prizes and things like that. And, you know, rather like me. Um, you know, like I you know, I liked Kipling and then I went on reading him. Um, I wonder if anybody's asked him. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's, 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 it's it was fascinating. Um, I just wonder, I mean, even talking to... Um, one of my colleagues the other week um, for the podcast, Ellen Swift, uh, and Ellen was saying that she grew up reading the Rosemary Sutcliffe books, mm. and that was one of the things that took her down the road of archaeology. But as yeah, I was saying earlier, imagine, that yeah. Sutcliffe is influenced by Kipling, and, and I just—it's yeah. one of those yeah. things that I wonder if his his influence is still very much there in terms of an undercurrent of of people who 
generally get an interest in these sort of things like the Roman world. Um, I think that's true. Ways, but that's, it's, it's, that's true on the archaeology. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. I think the, um, you know, his interest in Latin poetry and particularly Horace, um, I think, you know, classical scholars like it. But, you know, Latin and Greek are just not widely enough studied. And I, I, I think that's... Um, I should be surprised if there's many classicists under about under let's say my age who was sort of got interested because they because they enjoyed reading Regulus. Mm. <laughs> um but the archaeological side of it, yes, the kind of because um I mean the great thing about Kipling's stories is, you know, he was wonderful at creating a world in a very small space. There are only three stories. They're not that long, but you really kind of feel that you've lived in the in the Roman world. You can see why Rosemary Sutcliffe wanted to go on inhabiting that imaginative world and sort of adding to it and adding her own geography to it, really. Um, Anthony Powell, Powell, the novelist, he was a great Kipling admirer. <laughs> Kipling crops up particularly in, in the... Um, in the three war books of the dance of the music of time. Um, and, you know, the list goes on and on. The people who read Kipling and responded and responded creatively to him. What do you think his, his legacy is, is now? Um, well, we've just defined part of it, haven't we? Yeah. There is this oblique legacy in, um, in, in, sort of imagining the world of Roman Britain and, to a lesser extent, Roman Europe. Um, and it is very beguiling, you know, what was actually like to live there. Um, so, but that's, um, that is an indirect legacy that, as I say, I don't think the puck books aren't much read, mm. but I bet lots of your class had read them at Rosemary Sutcliffe. Did you ask them? No, well, I'm actually intrigued, I'm intrigued with that, how many of them have actually mm. read them. I mean, we're doing... We are going to do a class on Roman Britain in the media, mm. and that's going to involve things like Kipling and Rosemary Sutcliffe. Because I think it's interesting as well. Because I know some people say this sometimes that the idea of reception, how the past is interpreted today, can seem like mm. to some people like a bit of a cop out in terms of re a research area, which I don't agree with at all. Because I said earlier, that's actually the way that the vast majority of people come to have some understanding of it. Yeah. And how it's presented to the wider world through people such as Kipling, Rosemary Sutcliffe, and modern filmmakers and modern writers as well. I think that's tremendously important for us yeah, to understand. I agree. I agree. Well, you've got Simon Gilter on, on your side, so you've got strong people batting. Yeah. Um, but um, Kipling's direct legacy. Uh, surely any writer's legacy is what they wrote. Hmm. Um, Kipling's opinions, um, you know, need not be shared by by readers to to enjoy him. Although some some of them some of them will, and I think, you know, the case for reading Kipling all, always must rest on the pleasure that he gives, and he does give enormous pleasure. And um, there's also a case for reading him as sort of part of the history of empire. We were talking about yeah. this as well. Um, in which um, you don't say, oh, I won't, we, let's not read Kipling because he's racist. You say, oh, yes, well, he is racist, and that's part of being of, of British Empire. And so there's what he, 
what he says and what he does and what he doesn't say and so on. And um, also, you know, he is such a multifarious writer. People tend to want to pin him down to one or two things. You can't really. As it happens, I'm broadcasting in the Radio 3, the SI, in two or three weeks. On They have a series, Minds at War in the First World War. And, they, um, and I was asked to do the one about Kipling's Epitaphs of the War, which is, yes, here comes, here comes the classics again. It's a series that, uh, of, it's a sequence of short epigrams, 31 of them, which appeared in the poetry collection he published in 1919. And it's sort of modelled on the Greek anthology. Um, and he said he said to somebody that it was naked cribs of the Greek anthology. That's not really true. Any one or two of the poems are. But that is his model, the Greek anthology and the classical epigram. Um, and he probably would have anyway. But J.W. McHale, who collected and translated the Greek anthology, was his relative by married, marriage. He was married to Margaret Byrne-Jones, to whom close, Kipling was closer than any other of his first cousins. Um, and um, it's actually a wonderful elegiac sequence for, and it's not only for soldiers, it's for civilians. You know, the First World War was a total war, and it's for sort of every kind of, um, every kind of person he could think of. Um, and, um, you know, those are, those are worth, those are worth listening to. So um, I always find it rather difficult to sort of summarise the case for reading Kipling. He's such a sort of multifarious writer. Yeah. I mean, as you say, I just think it's important to keep going back to Kipling in terms of understanding him, in, well, in terms of understanding the time. Yeah. Uh, that's why I'm so keen to incorporate him into studying Rome Britain, because my belief is you that the story of Rome Britain, or the story of how Rome Britain is interpreted, is very much bound up in Britain's own imperial past over the well, last 150 true. years. Well, he was a man of his time and, his imper- and an imperialist, but not every imperialist is a genius. Mm, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's in a lot but of he the- was a genius, um, actually. I mean, flawed. And I think every genius book- is flawed. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. mean, my, my, my book about Kipling begins by saying that People disagree passionately about Kipling, and that includes me. I disagree with myself. (laughs) Part of me thinks he's such a wonderful writer, you can't possibly just sort of write him off because of his politics. And the other part of me thinks, yes, but some of his politics were so dreadful. (laughs) And you can't really reconcile the two. It's it's both. No, no. It's like we were saying earlier, I think that's the same with many, many a historical figure. Um, Mm. Everybody is, everybody's, complicated is one way of putting it some people are more complicated and conflicted than others I think yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah. Um, the, what's the name of the book just to put it out there for anybody listening oh it's simply Rudyard Kipling and still available online um, uh, I don't honestly know I don't <laughs> writers and their work were never good about royalties <laughs> no. and things like that so if, nobody has ever said if somebody was to go away um and want to read up a bit about Kipling, what would be a couple of good places to start? Have you got any ideas? Um, you mean write a book? To find out did, about Kipling? Yeah. Well, I think the two obvious introductory things would be my book, um, which is fairly short, it's only 40,000 words, and The Cambridge Companion, um, which I mean I contributed the um, chapter on the Jungle Book and children, Kipling as a children's writer, but I didn't say an awful lot about the Puck books. Um, but those would be the two starting points. 
I mean, there are there are good books about Kipling. The um, the scholar J M S Tompkins wrote, uh, what is it? The I think it's the Art of Rudyard Kipling. But that came out, you know, the revised edition was nineteen sixty four. You know, that's sort of fifty or sixty years ago. Um, and oh, I tell you what, hang on, what people ought to do who want to um, find out about Kipling is don't look first for a book. For a book, go onto the Kipling Society website. The Kipling Society has a fantastic website. Um, if you look at the New Reader's Guide to, Kip to Rudyard Kipling, you will find commentaries on everything that he wrote, and there are general essays, and it's all free. Um, and um, it's it is. I mean, the advantage of the books is that they direct you. You know, the trouble with a lot of on online stuff is there's too much information, and where do you start? But there are sort of tabs for general information, and then if you want to find out about the Jungle Book or the stories, you can look. You can look these up, and they're all annotated. Um, and a lot of his his poetry is also annotated, and you can read the text of the poems if you want to. But they're all online, so it's an incredible research resource. The Kipling Society's website, actually, and the New Reader's Guide, and they have the entire run of the Kipling Journal up to the last two years from 1927 to now. Um, the last two years are always only available to Kipling Society members, so you can't read those. You can't, general public can't read stuff online until two years after it's appeared in print. So I think that's where I would direct people to. Look up the Kipling Society, look at the, new, look at, look at the Reader's Guide and just sort of navigate your way around theirs. It's a, and, and, you know, anyone who's working on Kipling needs to use the Kipling Society website. Brilliant. It's a great, it's a fantastic research resource. Absolutely. I think... Uh, and completely free. <laughs> yeah, and hopefully um, more people from the ancient history classic side of things, archaeology side of things as well, mm. will start to make greater use of it. Because as I say, I think mm. we talk an awful lot about the people that came up with Romanization and other people that have put forward various models across the 20th century about how the Roman Empire worked and how Roman Britain worked. But I think... Uh, Kipling deserves a place alongside the rest of them because of how much of an impact he's probably had on people's perception of mm. it. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I think people should, anybody interested from that perspective, uh, should be heading to the, the Kipling website as well. But, great. Um, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Copy and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh, or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian.